handout, yes? Yes, does anybody not have one? You need one. We're actually going to be reading from this a lot today, and the reason why I wrote it down is because I didn't want to mess it up. This is too important of a subject for me to, to mess up. So, Also, got your pens. New pens are coming. Old pens are valuable? Yes. They are because they write, if no other reason, right? If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 15. We've kind of camped out here last week and this week because we want to touch upon a very important twofold subject that we find here. Last week we looked at the idea of faith, what faith is and what it's not. It is definitely not blind in its contents, but it is a conviction that something is true. It's the fact that you are persuaded unto an end of a conclusion. That's the idea. Everybody here lives by faith. Again, how many people tested out the chairs before you sat down? Not a person. And they were all over the place last night. Somebody could have done something weird to them. And yet everybody sat down. We all live by faith. Many of us go to a doctor. You might not really know much about their history or even where they graduated from, but they, they diagnose you with a, a sickness that you can't spell if you had to. And then they prescribe you a medicine uh, that you couldn't pronounce. And sometimes you can't afford, let's be honest with it. All right, thank you, Obama. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. I have this inner monologue, and sometimes it just, it just comes out. Commentary strange. I'm pretty sure Jesus agrees with me. Anyway, <laughs> but yet, we still follow the directions. We still trust the physician. We still take the medicine. And yet it still takes a little while to see the effects, right? I would say that we live by faith all the time. We trust that what somebody tells us is true, and so we follow their directives based on that. So we all live by faith. There's also another very significant point that takes place in this passage, and so we're going to start in Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. Just to read it again, so we'll be familiar. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Adonai Yahweh. Remember that from last week. Adonai, Master. He says here, What will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me. One born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Here it is. Then he believed. He had faith. He was convinced that it was true. He believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as what? Righteousness. There are three words in here that I want us to look at. Number one, the word reckoned. 
do we know what the word reckoned means? What does the word reckon means? Oh, here's how we use it. Well, I reckon so. Right? Are, is that how it's used here? Right? Very different. Very different how they use it in Wisconsin to Kentucky to, you know, in Palestine, right? So, what does it mean to reckon something? What's that? Acknowledge? Credit it is the idea. Acknowledge it, to credit it. Uh, or the, the technical word we use is the word impute. Impute it to somebody, to count it to their credit. In fact, I wanted to write it down to make sure we all get it. Notice here in the middle of the page on the front, the word reckoned means to assign value. Impute, to regard, to esteem someone as something. Abram was previously not something. But when God spoke to him, and Abram believed what God said, he was now esteemed or considered or now had a different value than he previously did. Does that make sense? Abram's value in verses 1 through 4 was something different from when God spoke in 5 and the belief came in verse 6. That's the difference. Now, the second word I want to look at is the word it. Now, notice I, it's not is. I'm not going to ask you. It depends on what your meaning of the word is, is, right? Some of you get that. Some of you don't. Man, we're just full of political undertones today. It's good stuff, right? What is it? What is it? He reckoned it to him as righteousness. What is it? It's referring back to something. His faith. His faith. When Abram believed God, something happened. Or let's say it this way. Faith was the response when Abram heard God's truth. That's what faith is. It is a response. Notice it's not an act. It's not an action. It's not, hey, I think I'll believe this today. I promise you, you won't believe it long. But when you are faced with facts, and the facts convince you in a direction, you then respond to those facts with belief, faith. You believe what's been said to be true. So it refers back to his faith. Now, the last one is righteousness. Now, this is kind of easy, right, when we talk about what this word means because it has what word in it? Right. It's what is right. Now, here's the interesting thing. Think with me for just a second. To be considered right, you have to have somebody that defines right. Does that make sense? You have to have someone in charge that says what is right and it is exemplified as right when it's compared to what is wrong. We have no problem pointing out what is wrong, don't we? Not at all. But the reason is, is because there's so much right around him. You see what I'm saying? This is the perfect contrast of that. The right and the wrong. In fact, the more right that you spend time with, the more wrong you realize is going on. And then the grace of God is magnified because somehow that works. And yes, I'm talking about you too. It works. So on your paper, look at it real quick. In the middle of that paragraph, righteousness deals with the idea of vindication. It's the idea that all accusations against you have been cleared off of the page. 
And it's a legal term referring to one's acquittal from all guilt and cleared of all wrong in the standing before God. Now here's why this is important that we get this concept, because this is the concept known as justification, okay? Being declared righteous before God. We could all sit here for a moment, close our eyes, and I'm sure that if we allowed our imaginations to run wild, we would come up with a myriad of sins from our past that we just assume no one know about, and we even get a little hot and sweaty thinking about it. The amazing thing that God is bringing to the forefront here is the fact that all of that wiped away, gone, clear. He sees you free and clear. I think this is important to realize this. Faith didn't save you. That's important. Jesus saves you through faith. Faith is the channel of which God's righteousness is imputed to you. That's important to understand. Sin has to be dealt with. We're in a pickle, a bad pickle without it. Or we're in a bad pickle without it being dealt with is what I mean. Let me give you just a quick example here. You guys are getting antsy because I got props. Yahweh is just. The creator God of all things. He's not just just. He's what just? Perfectly just. Why is he perfectly just? Because Yahweh can never operate different from who he is. Is God perfect? And so everything he does is going to be perfect. Now think about that real quick. Because often we blame God for situations that honestly he has nothing to do with instigating. Well, I guess this is just God's will in a situation. If sin caused it, that's not God's will. He is perfectly just and he is perfectly good. But in being perfectly just, he cannot let sin go. Okay? He has to deal with it. It has to be taken care of in some way. To be perfectly just and to not deal with sin diminishes or robs or labels this as being false. He can't be just. He lets sin go. Now think about that in parenting situations. Your child deserves a spanking and you just let it go. But somebody has to deal with that wrong, don't they? And it's you, on your hands and knees, picking up Cheerios off the floor for the 14th time. Everybody get the autobiographical nature of this comment. (laughs) And they're soggy. And if he doesn't want to eat them, he just throws them. And you look at me like, how does that ever make sense to you? And he, if he gets make complete sense, he probably say, because I'm one, that's why. And I say, that's no excuse, Right? But you need to be just. Is it wrong? Yes. Does it need to be dealt with? Absolutely it does. Being fair and just means that sin must be punished. Here's the reason why this is important. If we think about our sin and we think about the perfect just nature of who God is, you realize the seriousness of the high price of salvation. Because Jesus doesn't just take care of one sin. He takes care of all sins for all time. He's perfectly just. 
Now, in contrast with that, the one that we really want to gravitate towards is the fact that Yahweh is perfectly what? He's loving. And see, here's the amazing thing about it is, God loves people. He loves people tremendously. In fact, they are his crowning creation. When he got done with everything else, there is only one being that he put into place that actually has an image and a likeness like him. We often talk about animal instincts and things like that. That's silly talk. That's world talk. That's what the Bible calls you acting a fool. That's what that means. But when we label it something like animal instincts, what are we actually saying? We're excusing the carnality of our sinfulness. We're trying to find a rug that is socially acceptable to bury our wrong. Just cover it on up, not a big deal. God has to remain just. He has to deal with sin. But his love, who he is, God is love propels him forward to create a plan. And the only way that you and I can be accepted before a righteous God is only if we have a righteousness like his. Why? Because anything that is one ounce less than that is not truly righteous. God sets the standard. And you and I, regardless if we believe it or not, regardless if we think it mattered or not, regardless of how we try to rationalize it, our sin must be accounted for in some way. That's important. So with that being said, let's turn to the New Testament where Paul deals with this idea so we can grasp it a little bit more thoroughly. Romans chapter 3. And I tell you this, in my study of Romans this week, I got giddy about it. Somebody once said, if your heart doesn't want to sing after your studies, you're not ready to preach. All I got to say is, la, 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 right? Because that's how good of a singer I am. Uh, Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 19. Now we know. Now you might not know this, but I'm hoping that you know it now. And if you don't know it, one thing that I've done in my Bibles in the past is anytime I see the word know, I usually circle it because it's something I need to know. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, here's the reason why, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. In other words, when God wrote the law, he wasn't writing it down in order to kill everybody Saturday night. That's not the idea. He was giving guidelines of what it looks like to walk in fellowship between Israel and and a holy God. Now, in doing so, he knew people would mess up. That's why he has sacrifices in the law. It's part of it. Not only do you sin and mess up and break the law, but you also need to offer sacrifices to atone for that sin 
lawfully. Does that make sense? So there was a certain protocol in order to hold it out that still held with the idea of the holiness of God and walking with him. The amazing thing is when we look at the law, the one thing it does is it closes every one of our mouths. It leaves a group of people speechless. In other words, we have nothing to say about our defense. Well, God, I just didn't know. Well, God, you just didn't give me enough. Well, God, I was tired that day, right? Or our famous excuse, I just didn't have coffee, right? I just didn't get my coffee together this morning, and so you got to excuse this day, this sin, this idea. No, he says, if you look at my law, it shows you what the expectation is, and it magnifies your sin. It points out your sin. The whole world is accountable to him. So, say, oh, that's really bad news because that's everybody in here. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be, what's the word? Justified in his sight. No flesh can be declared righteous in his sight by keeping the law. Everybody, please get this. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. God doesn't like you more because you pray more. He doesn't like you more because you read your Bible more. He loves you because that's who he is. That's important. And even in the midst of your deepest, darkest, intentional sin, he does not stop loving. Very important to understand. Now, when we see this word justified in his sight, we can't be justified in his sight by the law. It's important that we understand what that means. Look what it says here. For, here's the explanation. Through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. This is where we all start. Everybody starts here. Before you ever get around and pass go and collect $200, we all start right here with nothing. We all start in debt is the idea. Now, I love the fact that 20 is at the bottom because I get to flip the page to brighter things. That's good, right? I don't like when it's telling me all this bad stuff about me. Verse 21, but now, I like that. Apart from the law, I like that because I can't live up to it. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets all spoke and pointed in one direction. Not the group one direction. One direction that we needed to go. Younger kids will get that. But it says here, even, here it is, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now pause for a second. What has been manifested apart from the law so that you and I could be righteous? It's not that we have to keep the law to be righteous because number one, we can't do that. It's an impossibility. And anytime that we look at the law, all it does is flash a big neon Las Vegas sign, you are a sinner, right? So we're automatically condemned before we even get a foot out the door. But notice, God has taken the means in order to manifest another righteousness that not just the law pointed to, not just the prophets pointed to, and this righteousness he has put on display right at this present moment. And what is it? The righteousness of God, there's the gift, right? The gift that he freely gives, the righteousness of God, through what? Faith. That's the channel. The channel through which it comes by in Jesus Christ, there is the object. 
The object of your faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross and resurrected because we have a living Savior that saves us. Do you guys realize that no other belief system in the world has a living Savior? None. Muslims don't. They don't. It's crazy. After 9-11 happened, it became one of the fastest growing religions in the world. You would have figured that an event like that would have turned the tide the other way. But the amazing thing about it, why is it so appealing? It's so appealing because they have acceptance. Well, maybe. I think the reason why it's so appealing is because it gives people a defined list of what they have to accomplish in order to be accepted. Grace freaks people out. Why? Because it actually calls you to step away and do like this and just accept it as true. See, that's hard, especially for us men, right? We always want to fix stuff. We always want to try to fix something. Well, what's wrong? Okay, I don't care how about you feel about it, baby. I'll just fix it. That's usually how we are, right? We just bust on through and just try to get it done. And it's accomplished. Shame on us, right? Some of you ladies are nudging right now. That's good. But the amazing thing is, is we've actually got to step back and say, no, 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 I can't fix it. Somebody else fixed it completely. Never to break again. And that's Christ. And what does he offer freely? Righteousness. You want to be as righteous as God is? Believe in Christ. Do you realize that you, if you are a believer in Christ, are as righteous as Jesus is in the sight of God? That almost sounds blasphemous if it weren't true. But that's just how powerful his provision of salvation is. He can actually make God look at you in a spotless array. That's good stuff. So notice, even the righteousness of God, here's the channel, through faith in the object Jesus Christ, for all those who what? Believe. Belief is the condition in order to receive righteousness. You have to believe, period. That's the only condition. It says here, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Let's break that verse down. Being justified. Everybody got your papers? Look down at the very bottom of your papers. I found a real good definition where it says, first page, the pas- this passage establishes the doctrine of justification. Charlie Bing writes, justification is God's legal act by which an unrighteous sinner, that's us, who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior is declared or reckoned is the same type of word, righteous before God because Christ's righteousness is imputed to him. See, that's the amazing thing. When God sees me now, he doesn't see me. He sees me in Christ. That's the place to be. That's why I'm seen as spotless, even though I have daily sin going on all of the time that needs to be confessed of. I am placed in a position of righteous. That doesn't mean I am righteous in my practice. Does that make sense? Different between position and practice? Yes? Raise your hand if you're asleep. Anybody need coffee? I could probably, if Tom wanted to get in my good graces, I could have him wheel that thing down through here and just start serving people like a stewardess on a plane. We could do that. Remind me to hug you later. This is called abusing the privileges of the microphone. Let's move on. Verse 24, being justified as a gift. Does anybody have a different translation? Anybody got the ESV? If you got the ESV, your translation will say, being justified freely 
by his grace. Freely by his grace. Now, here's what's interesting about why the NASB did not translate it that way. Because the word grace means, does anybody know? God's riches at Christ's expense. Yes, that's what we learned in middle school. I'm just messing with See, I got to pick on you too. It's you and Tom now. You and Tom. I'm just messing. That sounds demeaning. I'm not being demeaning. Unmerited favor. What does grace mean? It's a what? It's a free gift. It means free gift is the idea. It would have been redundant or it is a redundancy that the ESV has put in there. Here they've divided up a little bit. Being justified as a gift by his grace. In other words, being freely given a gift by the grace of God freely is the idea. Do you think Paul wants us to get the point? Free, 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 free. How many people like free stuff? Oh man, we flock to free stuff, don't we? We love it. We love it. In fact, we'll run over our mother to get to free stuff, won't we? Sometimes we will. I would never do that to my mother. You guys are sinners. Uh, being justified, <laughs> being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, the price paid. We just got done celebrating that, didn't we? The price paid representing the blood of Christ. Christ's blood is the only currency that would satisfy our debt, pay it off in full, and extend overarching riches to a completely undeserving people. That's his grace. The riches at Christ's expense, right? It says here, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a, good word, propitiation. This is the Greek word hilasterion, and it's the idea of a satisfaction being rendered. In other words... Since God is perfectly just, since he is perfectly holy, since sin must be dealt with in some way, there is a barrier that now separates everyone from him. Nobody is on the same level as him or can have a relationship with him at all. That was all gone when Adam and Eve did what they wanted to instead of what God asked them to do. Forfeited. Diminished. Imagine a big, huge wall. Sometimes I think about the Berlin Wall that came down, what was it, 25, 26 years ago? Was it 27 years ago? The idea of separating us completely. The cross of Christ comes in like a sledgehammer and breaks that wall down. And now the only way to cross over by the free way that's been blown open by the blood of Jesus is the channel of faith that carries us across in believing what God has said. It's, and see, here's why this is insane. Think about it for just a second. People who don't know Jesus or people who have rejected the gospel. It's, it's complete insanity. You realize how many people have had this wall broken open and they could freely leave the destitute conditions that they are in and the condemnation that they will deserve because of their unbelief. They could easily, because the wall has been blown open, simply believe in Christ and walk across, and a lot of them refuse it, and they smack away the hand of God when it's extended to them. Everybody see how crazy unbelief is. Everything's been done. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to work for. There's nothing left to build. There's nothing left to, not even a good excuse to come up with. Unbelief is so dangerous, so dangerous. And so he says here, this is important, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction in his blood through faith, 
This was to demonstrate, God is showing us something, demonstrating something. It was to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, hold on a second. God is showing us his righteousness. Look how he's showing this to us. His righteousness, why? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Would God have been wrong if when Eve took a bite of whatever that fruit was from the tree, if he just snapped her neck at that moment? He wouldn't have been wrong, would he? It would have been terrible. It would have been awful. But there's no way that Adam could have turned around and said, how dare you do that? He could never say that. God has the right. He not only warned you, but he told you the consequences if you disobeyed him. It's not like us sometimes are like, now if you do that, this is going to happen, and then it doesn't follow through. No, God always follows through. He can't not follow through. His very character won't allow him to not follow through. He must follow through. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, it's actually demonstrating the righteousness of God in some way. Why? Because for a long time, God didn't immediately snap necks when people sinned. He let it go. Did he? Did he let it go? No, it just sat there for a while being undealt with. Can the blood of bulls and goats take away sin? No, it cannot. It can cover them up, but it can't get rid of them. There's a big difference, fellas, between trying to put something over the trash so you don't have to take it out and actually bundling it up and taking the trash out. You know, sweetheart, it's overflowing. It's okay. We'll even take out our favorite cereal box and flatten it out to just kind of cover it up. It's okay, baby. No big deal. Still stinks, doesn't it? Still there. Maybe covered up, but you can't ignore it, can you? Neither can God. So watch what happens here. How is he displaying his righteousness? It says it was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, he had mercy in that situation and didn't automatically execute sin. But look at verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, why? So that he would be just, okay, everybody get it in your mind. So that he would be just, he would be perfectly who he already is without that being diminished whatsoever. Everybody understand that? His, his, his just nature does not get corrupted in any way. Everybody with me? Everybody asleep? Okay, I'm not just fanning myself. I'm trying to make everybody understand. When your point goes wrong, you bang the pulpit. Just. That capacity in him is not diminished. It doesn't go away. He still has to be perfectly just. But the reason why he demonstrates that in Christ is so that he can remain just. And look what it says next. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, how can God have a relationship with sinful people and not corrupt his very character? Not stop being who he is. I've got to remain just. I've got to deal with sin. I can't let sin go. So he is able, this is how cool God is, okay? He is able to uphold his just 
standards and them not be corrupted or diminished whatsoever. And then he brings in the amazing, miraculous gift of being perfectly loving at the same time and yet not having to do this. Notice he's able to do this and hold them in balance. He realizes the problem. You can't pay for your sin. You can't take care of it. It's beyond you. It is a situation that is out of your control, and you are utterly helpless before it. But because he is just as much this as he is this, he found a way to make it work. This is why salvation is extremely personal. Not only is he just, he's the justifier. He is the one who justifies you. He is the one who speaks on your behalf and declares you righteous before him. I mean, ultimately, only his opinion matters, right? So all that matters is what God has said about you. See, here's the interesting thing. The doctrine of justification clears up self-esteem issues real quick. It really does. So notice, he's just in the justifier of the one who has faith, that's the necessity, in Jesus. There's your object. What then? Is there boasting? What do I get to do? What do I get to do? What do I get to do? Notice that. What's he say? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, I have misplaced my sheet. Here it is. Everybody turn over on the back of your paper. Questions that are often asked in relation to justification. I think this is important. Here's some arguments that you might hear about this, why this is so important for us to know. How can a sinful person be made right with God? Faith in Christ alone. And regardless of what many popular preachers would tell you today, the word alone means by itself. Alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Not faith plus communion. Not faith plus baptism. Not faith plus church membership. Not faith plus you'll promise never do it again. No. It is simply realizing I can't do anything. I have to trust in Christ. Christ is the lone object. The second one. Doesn't someone have to be a good person, believe the right things, and seek to live a good life in order to be right in God's sight? No. It is by faith alone, simply believing what God has said. In our dispensation of the church age, our faith is a firm conviction in the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who died for our sins and rose again. All the work needed is on him, not us. The third one, is this is my favorite. I, I love it when I get this. Isn't that too easy? That God only requires faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, think about where that question's going. Because that person might know you, maybe not very well or really well, but they know one thing about you, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Okay? That's just too easy. But, but your life doesn't match up. But it, it doesn't always work out like that, does it? Well, turn the, question, turn the answer around on them. What else would we bring to our salvation to make it more complete? Think about that for a second. I need to be saved. Well, what are you going to bring to God that's going to get you there? Right? I mean, we're pulling out pocket lint and, you know, tokens or something. We got nothing. We got nothing. 
What part of the requirement did Jesus miss? See, that focuses on his work, right? Jesus only paid some. I still have stuff that I owe, maybe. Rough. Is that how the song goes? No, and praise God I'm not the one singing it. Jesus paid it off. I have the microphone. Someone will say it once and we're going to move on. And it's going to sting. Pete, control your woman. When something more than believing in Christ is required, we are saying that Jesus' perfect work was imperfect or lacking in some way. His remark upon the cross that it is finished means paid in full. His sacrifice was a complete, sufficient payment for the sins of the world. Faith does not save us. It is simply the channel by which the perfect work supplied by Jesus is imputed or credited to us. All the credit for why you should be allowed to spend an eternity with God is found in one place and one place only, and that's because Jesus set it up for you to enjoy and experience that. That's why. Now, why does justification matter? You might say, you know what? We, we, we've learned all this theological stuff, and we're talking about that God declares us righteous and the death of Christ, and we've heard all that before, and we understand that God is just, and but he's loving, and we get it, we get it. We probably heard Romans ad nauseum. But why does it matter? Big deal. Or if you were sitting in the back, you're so what, right? Why does it matter? I actually came up with seven things, and I ran out of paper because I didn't want to give you guys two or three more handouts stapled to it. I didn't want to do that to Mary. Turn over to Romans 5. Why does justification matter? First, the assurance of salvation. See, here's the great thing. If the reason why you are saved is because somebody else did the work, the question you need to be concerned with is, was it good quality work? Did Jesus do a good job? And if he did a good job, then of course I would ask you, how good of a job did he do? And you would say, he did a what job? He did a perfect job. So what's lacking? Nothing. Nothing. That means all the assurance that you have or need is wrapped up in the perfect work of Jesus. It is only by Jesus doing a bad job that you should be concerned about whether or not you're saved or losing your salvation. Everybody see that? Man, that's helpful. So the assurance of salvation, God accepts us based on the perfect work of Christ. God has subtracted our guilt and the penalty for sin and has added a right standing that cannot be taken away. Aren't you glad that God has perfect mathematics? This is certain glorification, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Look at Romans chapter 1. This is interesting. Therefore, having been justified by what? There you go. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop for a second. You have peace with him. Do you realize you have peace with God? What did your life look like before you believed in Jesus? Constantly butting heads with him. 
constantly in rebellion against God. Then you come in contact with the gospel and you believe that it's true and all of a sudden it goes, now you're on his side. Does that sound like good stuff? He has justified you and you can't help but to be on his team now because you did nothing to be there. He's put you there graciously. He's made you right apart from you. Apart from me. Wow, that's huge. So the second thing, we have an unshakable foundation for Christian growth. Being accepted in Christ, we do not work for God's favor. Rather, we already have God's favor in Christ. We already possess his acceptance completely because of Jesus. So therefore, we can serve with joy. Number three, we have peace with God, a present reality. We're no longer in rebellion against him, but stand blameless on his side. Number four, we have open access to God's presence at any time. Look at verse 2. It says, peace peace, uh, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction. Or if it helps you understand, access. We've now been given access somewhere to where we couldn't go before. We've uh, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Stop for a second and think about what that says. Man, that sounds like a lot of good Christian stuff. That's great. Let's go home. Stop, please. Grab onto this. It's already 1115. We're okay. It's way past time. So notice this. Everybody's like, what? Um, so notice, through whom also we have obtained our access by faith into this grace. In other words, the doors have been blown open and you can now come before the very presence of God. It's an act of grace that you're there. But here's what it says next. In which we, what? You not only stand in grace, but you have unlimited access to grace. Did you know that? You stand in it, and you can come into the presence of it. And notice what it says after that. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. That is not, well, I hope this works out. Man, if that's the hope the Bible's talking about, we're in trouble. We exalt, we can glorify God in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, not only are you fully accepted, not only are you standing in grace, not only are you allowed to come into the presence of grace, but your glorification, your destiny in heaven is already locked up and you can rejoice in it now. Your ticket's already taken care of. You will already be there. You will be glorified. How about this next one here? Look at verse three. And not only this, right? And I love it because I'm like, gimme, 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 right? Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Oh, there's that James stuff again. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you experience trials of various kinds. James is crazy. No, Paul's crazy too. We also exalt in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. You realize that Christians are the only people that can actually handle problems because we actually have something to handle them with, and that is God's word and his grace and his love and his favor. We're the only people that are equipped to deal with life. No one else is. No one else is. What's another benefit of this next one here? I love this one. We exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, sticking with it, 
Verse 4, perseverance, proven character. Proven character. In other words, it means being approved is what it is. In your tribulation, if you persevere, you will then be approved. How will a Christian be approved having already been justified? Be approved in your actions, how you respond, how you live your life before the judgment seat of Christ. It says here, and proven character, hope. Hope of what? Hope of a great judgment. Hope of coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, all I ever wanted to do was serve you with everything that I had. And not because you justified me and you already pushed me through this realm I could never be in before, but I stand in grace. I have access with grace. My glorification's locked up. And when trials come, I can deal with them and not just deal with them, but deal with them according to your word. So I end up in an approved manner before your son when he judges me according to what I did upon the earth while I was a Christian. See, the judgment seat of Christ is not something to fear if we're obedient people. That's the amazing thing about it. Why is that? Because God's done nothing but set us up for success. The only thing that would give us a bad judgment there is if we sin repeatedly, trusting our own ways instead of his. This is the one that's really amazing here. Hope does not disappoint, verse 5, because the love of God, his very agape love, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Praise God that we have God in us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love, agape, toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more, not just that, but on top of that, it's like stacking Lego blocks on top of one another. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be, what's the word? Does that mean go to heaven when you die here? Oh, I'm getting ready to mess everybody up for the day. It's going to be great. It does not. If we've been justified by his blood, that took place at the cross, didn't it? We believe. We're made righteous in God's sight, right? He declares us. We've been justified. But look what it says here. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now pay attention to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Isn't that our justification? Yes, it is. Much more, having been reconciled, past tense, we shall be, there it is again, saved by his life. In other words, we will be delivered from living a worthless life is the idea. Christ's life now becomes a life that you and I can live and participate in. I mean, when we talked about the whole idea of loving people to life in Christ, isn't this what we were getting at? It's not just the idea that lost people need to know Jesus and have eternal life, but it's the fact that when Jesus died, he came to give life and life how? Abundantly. Are you living the abundant life? That's something to think about. How do I live the abundant life? Here's a question. Are you justified? How do I get justified? Well, Jesus did all the work. All you need to do is believe. That's what we would normally call getting saved. But here's an interesting thing, and if you want to write it down, it'll mess you up, but I encourage you to study it. The word saved in Romans never means go to heaven when you die. When he wants to use that phrase, he uses the word justify or justification. But when he talks about saved and salvation, he is talking about that you now, because of Jesus, have the ability to live a life that nobody else gets to live. 
Why is that? Because he wants you to live abundantly. He wants you to live the new life. He wants you to experience Christ's life. See, Jesus just didn't stay dead. He raised from the grave. Do we know why? Why did Jesus raise from the grave? Because only a living Savior can provide you with that type of life to live. He wants you to share in his life. How many people are utterly confused? If you are, email me. But here's what I want you to get. Justification matters. Why? Because it doesn't just break down the door of the sin barrier. It invites you freely by the work of Christ to stand in a perfect view with an almighty God who otherwise we would be answerable to for our unbelief. But not only that, Jesus has so much more in store because our justification sets the framework for living for him. Jesus has a great life for us to live. Question is, are we living? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that through no effort that we could bring, you accept us in the perfect efforts of Christ. What a privileged position for such a destitute person like myself. And yet, Father, you don't just want to justify us, but you want to keep delivering us from the power of sin in our life that still wants to hang on to these bones and this flesh and to try to make us disobedient. Father, thank you for the unconditional acceptance we have in Jesus and the great love that you demonstrate. And I pray, God, that light a fire in us to make us realize we have no reason to waver in assurance. We have no reason to, to feel at odds with you whatsoever. You have accepted us completely in Christ. I pray, Father, we take up that mantle and we glory and give you praise because of it. We seek to move forward in living an obedient life as Jesus would have us to do, as he has provided, as he lives to provide for us. And I pray it in his name. Amen.